0: Today, on The Lab Report. Patty, are you flexible?
1: I can touch my toes.
0: Is your metabolism flexible?
1: What does that even mean?
0: We'll ask Rachel Gregory. Great.
1: The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report.
0: Even though we're standing up, I've still found something to fidget with.
1: You always seem to find something to fidget with.
0: I'm a fidgety person.
1: You are. are. It's okay. Hello! Hi, Michael
0: Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers.
1: Welcome to The Lab Report, sir.
0: (sighs) Let me settle in here. That was
1: a heavy sigh.
0: I'm just I'm, I'm getting settled in, you know? Oh, you welcome me. I'm kicking my feet it. up. <laughs> think about hitting the fridge in a second, get a beverage.
1: <laughs> oh.
0: Welcome everyone to the lab report. This is a Genova podcast, all things functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and I'm gonna slow down my speech now.
1: <laughs> you know what I think people should do? What's that? I think people should go to iTunes. Spotify, and subscribe to this podcast. Download, rate, review.
0: And you're going to slow down your speech now. Uh, Maybe. You don't yeah, do a lot of that, do you? I'm just settling in. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that you can do if you have a question, you can email us. Right. Podcast at gdx.net. That's where you send your emails off to. They'll, they'll get filtered into our massive filtration system where we collect all the emails that you guys are sending us. It's amazing.
1: Is it that massive, really? I think it's just an inbox.
0: Yeah, it's just an inbox. You're right. <laughs> that's a good point. Trying I'll to be
1: all fancy. I'll stop with that
0: silliness. <laughs> so, one of the things that's super exciting
1: uh-huh.
0: is that we're going to talk to Rachel Gregory today.
1: I know, I'm excited about this.
0: And Rachel Gregory, among so many other things, she's best selling. She's a speaker at Mm -hmm. Ketocon, Mm -hmm. so she knows what she's talking about from a ketogenic diet perspective. She also works very closely with athletic performance and how to implement both nutritional diet lifestyle interventions for athletic performance and optimization. So this is just going to be a really fun conversation.
1: I have lists of things to ask her.
0: I've seen the list.
1: Let's call her. Okay. Okay. Michael, I am so excited to have Rachel Gregory on the show today. Yeah, me too. I know. Rachel Gregory, for those of you who don't know, is a board-certified nutrition specialist, athletic trainer, strength and conditioning specialist, and author of the best-selling book, 21-Day Ketogenic Diet Weight Loss Challenge. She received her master's degree in nutrition and exercise physiology from James Madison University and a bachelor's degree in sports medicine from the University of Miami. Rachel has a vast knowledge in the science and application of the ketogenic diet for weight loss, performance, and overall health. She completed the first ever human clinical trial, looking at the effects of the ketogenic diet in CrossFit athletes, which is published in the International Journal of Sports and Exercise Medicine. Currently, she offers online programs in nutrition and athletic training through her website, killingitketo.com, which I love.
0: Yeah, that's a I great love the name. website, awesome.
1: and she hosts a podcast entitled "MetFlex and Chill," which I also love.
0: Yeah, well, good wel- titling.
1: <laughs> Welcome, Rachel.
2: Welcome to the Lab Report. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So, Rachel, my first question in functional medicine, we talk a lot about a diet and lifestyle first approach for identifying root causes and optimizing health and wellness. And your work in nutrition and athletic training fits really well into this particular framework and model. And just overall, what got you interested in this particular life path and career?
2: Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Manhattan, New York. That's where I'm originally from. And I grew up playing sports my whole life. And the household I grew up in, my parents were pretty health conscious Mm -hmm. for what they thought they knew. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So kind of talking about I talk about this all the time but my dad thought having honey bunches of oats with skim milk every morning was healthy because that's what he was <laughs> right, told right. Yeah. and having Gatorade you know in the house all the time instead of soda right it, that was the healthy the healthy way to go and and so i kind of grew up in this that's what i say health conscious household but at the same time it was like still naive to what we know today. Mm-hmm. And I grew up playing sports, and I knew that I, I wanted to play sports in college, particularly basketball. I got injured, pretty bad injury my junior year of high school, and that didn't end up happening. So I decided to, instead of knowing that I couldn't become an athlete, I decided to that I wanted to look at treating athletes. So that's what I thought I wanted to do. So I uh, went to undergrad at the University of Miami, in the athletic training program. Mm -hmm. So that was my undergrad degree. And throughout that program, throughout college, I absolutely loved it. I actually started competing in triathlons as well. So I couldn't play basketball at that level, but I started, I kind of needed something else to do when Mm -hmm. I got there sports wise and competition wise. So I joined the club triathlon team there and started competing in triathlons, started to get more into nutrition, especially as it related to performance and how Nutrition is so important with any type of performance or any type of athletes and things like that. And so as I got later into my undergrad career, I realized that I was super, super getting super passionate about nutrition. I took a bunch of classes and I realized that athletic training, I loved athletic training and I still thought I wanted to do it, but I knew I wanted to dive deeper into nutrition. And it was kind of too late by that point to go back and, you know, do a dietetics route or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I wanted to go on to grad school and study nutrition further. So I went to James Madison University, got my master's in nutrition and exercise physiology while working as an athletic trainer there for two years. And that was absolutely amazing. Again, I just learned so much more about nutrition. And I guess also with talking about like the current nutrition programs out there, when it comes to undergrad and grad school, they're still kind of following a lot of the, I guess you could say old, older nutrition practices and right. textbooks and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really I learned a lot, a lot of the the more kind of physiology type things, but I had to do my own research when it came to what's truly important in terms of overall health and nutrition and why is fat not the devil and what what is that all, you know, that whole realm and right. So that's what I dove into when I got to grad school, and yeah, I'm sure we can get into some some of that stuff as well. But that's kind of my yeah. uh, my yeah. journey. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, as part of that journey, it appears that you've stumbled upon the ketogenic diet because you wrote this best selling book called. 21-day ketogenic diet weight loss challenge. And you're pretty well known in the field as an expert in ketogenic diets. And you know, keto is so popular these days. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions of ketosis that patients and clinicians should know about?
2: Yeah. So when I got to grad school, I was I had to do a thesis on for that two-year program. And I came across the ketogenic diet. And we can talk about that in my study in a little bit, but I just dove into everything keto. I adopted the lifestyle for myself. This was six six years ago. So this was before keto became a fad, I guess you can call it, or became popular, right? And so I would say that one of the biggest misconceptions, especially if you are new to this space, to keto, to following like a lower carb diet or lifestyle, it's really understanding that ketosis is, isn't it's not a fad, right? It is a metabolic state. Right. Um, right. So being in a state of ketosis just means that your body is producing ketones. And as you kind of become adapted to doing that, your body starts to learn how to use those ketones or that fat as well for fuel. So you're able to tap into your own body fat stores and basically use that for fuel versus if you were following like a really high carb diet, you wouldn't really, which is the standard American diet, which is what most people follow, I guess you could say. Um, I guess it's changing a little bit now, but you're not able to really tap into those fat stores to convert them to ketones to be used for fuel. So that's kind of one of the biggest misconceptions. It's ketosis is a metabolic state. And also understanding that keto and the ketogenic diet came about to treat children with epilepsy. That's where it was founded years ago. And there was a standard ketogenic diet, right? That mm-hmm. was very, very, very high fat, low to moderate protein and extremely low carb. And that's what we would call a standard ketogenic diet. Uh-huh but a lot of people don't realize that the standard ketogenic diet just what i said it was it was founded to treat a specific disease and ailment particularly epi- epilepsy in children because their brains could not use glucose or sugar for fuel and so they had to find another fuel source which was ketones and so that standard ketogenic diet was developed for that specific ailment whereas nowadays most of the people who embark on a ketogenic diet Are just looking for i mean a lot of people find it or hear about it and like oh it's an easy way to lose weight so obviously a lot of people are attracted to that but the standard standard keto diet is not necessarily what the average healthy you know semi-healthy or even you know someone suffering from diabetes has to follow right and so that's where there's a big misconception there it's like You can still get into a state of ketosis, not necessarily following a standard, super, super high fat, super low carb diet. For a lot of my clients that I work with and kind of just what I've promoted over the years is and found to work for myself and for my clients is really still focusing on protein, having protein a little bit higher than the standard keto diet. Fat is still high, but not as high. Mm -hmm. And carbs are kind of this lever that you can go lower, higher, depending on your metabolic state, where you're coming from, your activity level, your history, all of that. And so it's super individualized. And I think one of the biggest things as well is like, we don't want to be fearing protein. Again, a standard keto diet is very moderate, low, lower protein, but that's not necessarily what your average person should be following. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Right. So. right. Cool. Well, even with diets in general, we know you know, one size doesn't always fit all. And in your podcast and in some of your online programs, you make a point to address keto in women because they're a little bit different. And you talk about the specific pitfalls women encounter. Can you talk about why women often have a hard time with weight loss and keto specifically?
2: Yeah, sure. So just in general, women do have, you know, more sensitive hormones than men. That's kind of just generalized, like that's just how it is. We have more sensitive hormones. We have, you know, we go through a cycle every month and I also feel like there's kind of a, a psychological aspect to it as well that hmm. women are, you know, more, more prone to dieting and and going through phases of yo-yo dieting and things like that. I mean, not that men don't, but I just feel like there are more women who who go through that. So that combined with you know, the more sensitive hormones and just the fact that women are put on earth to reproduce as well. Not saying that that's the only reason we're put on earth, but (laughs) if we think about it that way, right? Right. Right. So that kind of goes back to the hormone side of things. And I think another thing that's not also talked about is, is the fact that, you know, in general, women do have less muscle mass than men. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I really promote for a lot of my clients and encourage is, you know, resistance training and building muscle and how important muscle is for overall health and longevity and just daily function and everything right mm-hmm. and so i think that's another piece that a lot of people don't think about as well but there are some pitfalls for women mostly coming back to that more sensitive hormones that we have and our body our body's like not being able to maybe take as much stress as maybe our male counterparts so for example following a ketogenic diet like being in ketosis it is a stress on the body, just like exercise is a stress on the body. Mm-hmm. They're good stressors, but to a point. And so I think it all has to come, kind of come back to that overall stress load that you're under, specifically with women. And with you know, our psych- monthly cycles and things like that, there's kind of this tipping point where if you, from my experience, right, from my experience for myself over the years and working with mostly women clients over the years, a lot of women come to me and they're just overly stressed. They, Their allostatic load, what we call is basically our overall stress load, mm-hmm. whether it's from taking care of our kids taking care of you know our husband you know right whatever it may be exercising over exercising whatever whatever that stress load is yeah and sometimes adding keto on top of that or adding fasting on top of that is can be something that's not so great so we have to really find this balance of that finding that stress balance that we can that we can get to and be able to see results and get the results you want. while also obviously working towards optimal health. And so I think with women, there's just a balance and and again it, it also comes back to just realizing that everybody is their own individual and there's there's no one size fits all. And that's something that I've learned throughout the years. Um, especially when I first got into keto, I I went through years of yo-yo dieting and just try especially getting into nutrition, just trying all different things, right? And mm. And so I kind of, when I found keto and I started doing it for myself and, you know, got all this mental clarity and just felt like kind of this freedom from thinking about food all the time. I was like, wow, this is it. Like I'm never going back to eating carbs again. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then over the years, you know, I learned and I experimented with so many different things and I worked with clients and found what worked for them and things that didn't work for them. And I've realized like. Coming to now that, especially over this past two years, it's just like, there's so, there's every so different. There's no one way. And if we are dogmatic about our views, it becomes really hard to help people and to educate them and really find what works for that individual. So especially just coming back to women, I think there are definitely places and needs for carbohydrates in especially women's diet, especially for helping to re-regulate some of those hormones and things like that. But again, it all comes back to, you know, the individual and where they're at and where they're coming from.
1: Does can cortisol like cortisol from the stressors and the allostatic load that you're describing, can cortisol knock you out of keto? Is that a dumb question? I think, no, it's not a dumb dumb question.
2: (laughs) I think it can't if you have like chronically, chronically high cortisol, and it's just all over the place, like your body is in that stressful state. So it may not want to, you know, one, produce ketones to the fact that it could if it wasn't in that stressful state. Mm -hmm. And then obviously realizing too, that your hormones are, you know, they're all working together or working against each other as well. And so sometimes that can affect as well. So yeah, I don't think that's a dumb question. I think it's definitely something that could with that overall stress load could prevent that
0: okay I really appreciate you bringing that point about you know everyone being a little bit different do you find yourself kind of tailoring people's macros and and even more to the point I think their their overall carbohydrate intake and how that creates this the degree of ketosis is that something that you're often tailoring people uh, tailoring to the individual?
2: yes a hundred percent I think that when you first start you know if you've never, embarked on a lower carb ketogenic diet before, if you've never been in a state of ketosis, like your body has never been there, right? You don't know how to use ketones as fuel. I think there is kind of this standard transition period for most people where you do have to go pretty low carb to just get into that state. Again, it depends on the person, but I would say just from my experience and just overall you know, diving into the research and the literature, Under 50 grams of total carbs is usually a place where most people can get into that state of ketosis. Some people, if you're super insulin resistant- you're not active, maybe you need even less carbs than that to get into ketosis. Some people who are more active, maybe they're more metabolically healthy. They don't have a lot of things going on. Maybe there's, they could have more carbs and still be in ketosis, especially if you are an athlete and you're more active. Some athletes can have upwards of 100 total carbs and still, quote unquote, be in ketosis. Mm-hmm. And so that's also something like that I think, you know, there is this stage where we have to go through and get keto adapted. And I talk all about that in my book. But then once you've kind of gone through that, you are your body is kind of primed to know what ketones are for fuel, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, living in our modern day, most Americans, especially have never been in a state of ketosis, you know, their body has never been running on ketones for fuel, like in their entire life. They're just used to higher carbs and what I call sugar burners, right? Instead of being a fat burner. So there is that transition period. But then once you get past that, and I think it's different for everyone, like some people, you know, it's a month or two, then they can get keto adapted. Some people, it takes up to like six months. It really depends where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But once you kind of go through that quote unquote keto adaptation phase, It's so different for everyone. Like, it's so, your body knows now, okay, these are, this is a fuel source. I kind of know how to use ketones for fuel. And from my experience, people can consume carbs and get back into ketosis faster than it's different for everyone. But that's where you start to titrate and play around with incorporating carbs based on your activity level, based on everything you're doing, whatever your goals are. And then also playing around with kind of that fat level and and protein. For protein, for me personally, when I work with clients, I most clients that come to me are women and are Undereating protein severely mm-hmm. not even even if they haven't been following any type of keto diet just even in the standard kind of american diet it's like protein is still very very under eaten and so that's a huge piece of the puzzle that once we can get your protein up from good quality sources things start to just move along in a in, a, in the right direction just from that and then we play around with carbs and fats depending on what the goals are and where you're coming from again. And, and yes, it's all individualized. Yeah. Everybody is so different. So yeah,
0: that's interesting. And i heard you talk too about, you know, once people start to get accustomed to ketosis, maybe get a little keto adapted. Do you ever run into individuals having a hard time with sustaining weight loss or maybe plateauing or maybe even kind of moving backward from a, a weight loss perspective? Do you, do you notice this sort of phenomenon? I feel like i heard of this.
2: Yes. Yes, of course. And that's where um, a lot of my clientele come to me. They're at like a lot of women, like I mentioned, they're at this plateau. Maybe they've, you know, particularly gone keto for a while and they saw really, really great results initially. And then they kind of hit this sticking point and this plateau, you could call it. It's not just women, men too. And and this is for any diet you follow too. It's not just like following keto. Mm -hmm. And I think that it mainly comes down to For me, just from what I've seen, it's really just a lack of awareness and education for what you're doing. And so realizing that things as you diet kind of your metabolism you know you've probably heard your metabolism quote-unquote slows down yeah. it's not as simple as that and I would say that I don't really like talking about it that way but there is you know when you go on a diet there's something called and when I say diet I mean like you're going into a, a deficit right a right. deficit of energy there's something called metabolic adaptation or adaptive thermogenesis is this word that the, the, they both go hand in they're both the, mean the same thing but your body Downregulates processes as you are basically downregulating your energy intake and also losing weight and so or fat which is the goal right and mm-hmm. so you know many people go on a diet they see initial fat loss or weight loss especially with keto there's that initial drop in water weight and then they should continue to see results as they're going but then they hit this sticking point and that's usually due to many of these things that happen with metabolic adaptation the main thing being you know as you lose weight you or lose body fat, which I, I hate, you know, I always say, I always go back to saying lose body fat because losing <laughs> right, weight, we right. don't necessarily want to just lose weight, we right. wanna lose body fat. Yeah. And so one of the things that happens like as you lose that body fat, you are becoming a smaller person, right? So the amount of calories or energy that you consumed when you just started this quote unquote diet is not the same amount, you know, if you lost 30 pounds, your body is, you're smaller, you're a smaller human being. So you need less fuel and less energy on a daily basis to maintain that new, you know, 30 pound loss. So Mm -hmm. if you go back to eating, you know, the same amount of energy that you were before, you will probably gain some weight back. Um, You won't be able to maintain that weight loss. And that just comes back to the education piece of it. And then there's other things like you know, we can dive into the thermic effect of food, you know, you're eating less food. So you're having less of that thermic effect of food, which is basically the energy that your body takes to digest and absorb those nutrients. Most one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle that a lot of people don't think about with fat loss and weight loss is this concept of neat or non exercise activity thermogenesis, which is basically just all of your movement outside of exercise. Mm -hmm. So fidgeting and you know, walking around and walking the dog and folding the laundry and all of these things that you don't think about, as you diet and lose weight, you're in that deficit, right? And so energy will probably come down and you don't and you subconsciously stop moving as much as you were because your body just has less energy. So if you're not paying attention to that, that's where that lack of awareness comes in. If you're not paying attention to that, you are doing yourself a a big disservice and there is a lot of studies and anecdotal research showing that if you are not like paying attention to your movement, that's one of the biggest things that's affected. So like, for example, with my clients, we, you know, if I work one-on-one or whatever throughout all of my programs, I always recommend having some type of, some way to quantify your movement. And that comes back to steps. So tracking your steps throughout the day, that's a really, really easy way to quantify how much you're moving and to just be aware of that. So those are a few factors. And then also with fat loss and weight loss and going, you know, having less energy coming in and, and going on, you know, a diet, it does affect your hormones, right? And so your hormones will down regulate kind of the processes that are going on. And if you are not aware of that, and if you're always quote unquote dieting, or if you're always in a deficit for so long, that can affect things as well, especially taking a hit on your hormones. You have to, this all comes back to the education piece of it. You cannot be in a deficit forever, right? And so that's what I try to get across with a lot of my clients is, I, I wanna teach you all of these things and educate you on this and not just say like, You know, if someone comes to me and is like, can you just give me a meal plan and tell me what to do with that meal plan? I say no, because you're not going to be educated on the foods that you should be learning more about. Like, what are these foods made of? You know, what's their composition? And then lastly, there's a huge factor when it comes to accountability. So if you don't have someone holding you accountable for all of these things, I think it makes things a lot harder and so that's why I personally have my own nutrition and, and fitness coach. Mm-hmm. And I always will. I think any good coach should have their own coach because not just learning, but also like having that accountability factor and all that.
1: So sorry, I can ramble on forever. <laughs> that, that was quite an answer to that question. Yeah. I just learned so much right there. Yeah, was, that was it's, great.
0: It's super interesting. And yeah. it, it also, I mean, it just elucidates how, it's, how important it is to take a personalized approach to this yeah. as well. Because, you know, as you were saying, the hormones can be adjusted by, you know, whether you're continually in a fed state or fasting state. And, you know, a lot of people will talk about keto as sort of mimicking mm-hmm. a fasting state, but that can also be altered based on, as you're saying, Rachel, the, the macro percentages that mm-hmm. are being introduced. And so you can, you can sort of do a little bit of a pulsatile or, you know, you can pulsate this fed state versus fasting state to kind of fix the hormones that way.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: You know, one question that we, we get a lot, and I don't know if you also get this too, but like as nutritionists dealing with clients, and you're know, speaking about a lot of clients coming to you who've done a lot of yo-yo dieting and things like that, do you worry about with introducing ketogenic diet that you might be running the risk of creating more food fears? There's a lot of concern around this concept of orthorexia these days. Can you maybe speak to how you're kind of triaging that concern?
2: Yeah, sure. And yes, it's completely true. And, you know, I've gone through this myself too. Like I mentioned, when I first embarked on, you know, the ketogenic lifestyle, I was like, wow, like I, you know, I love how I feel. I'm getting the results I want. And I'm, I'm never going to eat carbs again, right? Carbs are carbs are bad. <laughs> <The worst. Right. laughs> um, and I've obviously learned over the years, just getting into the field myself working with people. It's like, when we look at food as bad or good, that's the big issue. Like food doesn't have morality behind it. We can't shun certain macronutrients and things like that. We know that we went through this whole period of fat phobia, right? And Mm -hmm. we see what that did for all of our health and, you know, diabetes skyrocketed, Mm -hmm. obesity skyrocketed, all of that. And so I think, now, especially the last few years with keto getting popular, one of the issues is that we're now starting to develop this carb phobia, something that I went through, it's something a lot of my clients are going through, they come to me in this really just carb phobic state. And so that's an issue in itself. And so that's what I try to kind of my just, again, as I've learned over the years, you know, keto is not the end all be all, I do think that following a lower carb lifestyle is very advantageous for just health overall, you know, reducing inflammation, keeping that inflammation low. Again, so many people are suffering from insulin resistance and diabetes nowadays, it's like following a lower carb diet, and that being kind of the home base. And again, realizing that lower carb doesn't necessarily mean under 50 grams forever, it also depends on, you know, where you're coming from. And so whether that's, going up to 100, 150 carbs, 200, whatever it may be. There's no number. Everybody's so different, right? But kind of coming back to your question, I think that there is a lot of carb phobia kind of circulating nowadays with keto being so popular and all that. And I think it just comes, again, back to that education piece of it Mm -hmm. and finding what works for you and what you feel most comfortable with. And that's why I love this concept of metabolic flexibility in the sense that, you know, you're teaching your body how to, to be able to tap into different fuel sources and use those fuel sources at different times. So, you know, using fat and ketones when it's warranted, maybe when you're sitting at your desk all day, you know, you're not really moving versus, you know, if you're super active and you're doing, Whatever it may be, maybe you do need you do do need carbs and glucose for that activity, and just have it like teaching your body to be able to go back and forth between those fuel sources. I think is super super important. It's something that most most of us can't do, right? Because Mm -hmm. we're always most Americans and are always in that you know grew, grew up in that higher carb state. So like I said, they can never tap into those ketones for fuel. And then kind of on the other side of that, if you're someone who's been following a very low ketogenic diet for a long time, like years, you might not be able to use carbs anymore effectively. So there's like this spectrum and it's, we need to find this balance and it's so different for everyone. But, you know, just kind of answering your question, I think there is fear and there is carb phobia and there is still fat phobia and things like that. And just, we have to realize that food is not bad or good, it's fuel. And there, I mean, I would say there are some, quote unquote, bad foods that that I would categorize mostly just like super processed and, you know, factory made foods. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that's definitely something that I work with a lot of clients through and kind of again, it all comes back to that awareness and that education piece of it and how how we're using these foods for fuel. And that that's kind of what I see.
1: Perfect. And I mean, in the clients that you see, or even you yourself with the ketogenic diet, do you ever incorporate intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating in your practice?
2: Yes, yes. So I, again, I went through many, many experience, experiments myself, <laughs> yeah. um, especially getting into keto and then and then afterwards getting into inter- intermittent fasting. And I probably went down, I like to call it the, the fasting rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. a lot of people go through this where they start um, incorporating intermittent fasting. They feel great. And then they're like, okay, well, if I'm doing a little bit, maybe more is better. And then they keep adding more and more and more. And especially with women going back to that kind of set where our hormones are a little bit more sensitive, women can have a harder time with incorporating extensive fasting, especially longer term fasting. Because mm-hmm. again, fasting is another stressor to the body, right? So yeah. if we have too much of a stress, it's it's not a good thing. And so kind of figuring out that sweet spot. And again, this is different for everyone depending on where you're coming from. That's where we we have to go. We have to, f- you know, figure it out for you as an individual based off of where you're coming from, what your metabolic state is like, you know, what your activity level is like. And realizing that, especially for women, fasting every single day for, you know, 20 hours is probably not the best idea for mm-hmm. like long-term mm-hmm. just because of that stress response and just because of other things that are going on, right? And so I think that that is, I incorporate intermittent fasting for myself and for my clients, but it all comes back to finding that sweet spot and then also realizing that it changes as you are going through your life, right? You know, there might be a period of time where you are not under any stress at all or, or not under much stress at all and everything's kind of lined up for you, then that might be a great time to incorporate intermittent fasting, But if you are someone who is super stressed out and you're over-exercising and all these things, then, you know, incorporating intermittent fasting may not be the best idea. So it just all comes back to you as an individual. But I do think it has its place for sure, especially if with someone who might be suffering from, you know, type two diabetes or looking to, you know, become more insulin sensitive. And then also as an adherence tool, I know for myself, if I'm going through, like personally, or if I'm bringing a client through a fat loss phase, right, if I'm putting them through a a diet or fat loss phase, sometimes incorporating intermittent fasting can be a great adherence tool for them to be able to stick to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But then also realizing that that can change over time as well. And that's where you know, it comes back to the individual. Cool.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's kind of another way to be metabolically flexible. And, even a little mm-hmm. bit more so to the extreme of that kind of ketosis spectrum, because you're essentially you're going into a, a deeper state of ketosis with incorporating the fasting. So that makes a lot of sense if your if your main goal is metabolic flexibility.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Kind of pivoting away from dietary approaches for a second, and regarding athletic training. We've discussed CrossFit on prior episodes and have spoken about many different athletic approaches. What's your kind of overall training focus? Is it a high intensity interval training like CrossFit? Is it more cardio, et cetera? Like what's, what's your kind of fitness approach?
2: Yeah, so I did CrossFit for many years. So in under in undergrad, I did triathlon. So I was more endurance focused. And then when I got to grad school, I actually found CrossFit because I was looking for something to do. I was looking for something else to do again. Yeah. And I couldn't, I didn't have time, you know, working as an athletic trainer and in grad school, I didn't have time to train for triathlons anymore. So I was looking for something different to do. And I tried out CrossFit. I just fell in love with the community and just that competition factor. And so that's where I really got into CrossFit. So I did CrossFit for many years. And then about two years ago now, I got an injury and I I injured my back and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I had to take a break. And then after that, I started getting more into just regular strength. Like I wouldn't say regular strengthening, but more of like hypertrophy training, strength training, you know, going to a global gym and following a progressive program. I actually ended up hiring my own coach and went through my own kind of transformation, Mm -hmm. which I learned a lot from. And so nowadays I just mostly focus on resistance training in, you know, your, your, your regular gym, but with a focus on progression and not just, you know, going into the gym and, you know, doing some random exercises every day, but actually following a program that is very long term and has a purpose behind it and has progressive overload factored in and realizing that that is the only way to truly build muscle is you have to progressively overload which just means you have to do a little bit more every single time you step in the gym and so that's kind of what i like i write programs for my clients and that's what i follow currently is more just resistance training. And then I incorporate, of course, conditioning and cardio, depending on what my goals are.
1: Got it. Great, great. But speaking to the CrossFit community, you actually published that, that paper on low carb ketogenic diets and CrossFit. Can you tell us a little bit about that research that you did there?
2: Yeah, sure. So that was when I got to grad school. Like I mentioned, I had to embark on a master's thesis. And all of my classmates obviously had to do it too. And most of them are doing more observational studies, so more survey based studies. And our advisor basically told us, you know, you have to pick something that you're going to want to research and do for the next two years, because it's a two year program. (laughs) And I knew that that's, you know, that's not something that I (laughs) You know, doing surveys and stuff like that, I just, for me, it was like, I don't know if I'm going to be interested in that. I want to do something that like is challenging and is like something I get excited about. So I decided to do a study, a human clinical trial, looking at the effects of implementing a low carb ketogenic diet. In non-elite CrossFit athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, my advisor basically said he was like, "You have to pick a nutrition protocol and implement, in it, implement it in an exercise population." And so, like I said, I just started CrossFit, and I was like, "All right, well, this is the perfect exercise population." There's not much much research out there on CrossFit. If you look in the literature, especially back then, there wasn't much like research or papers on CrossFit as a sport. So I was like, "Okay, that's perfect." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then as I dove into trying to find a nutritional intervention, again, this was six years ago now, there wasn't much on keto with performance-based, you know, exercise, things like that, especially there was nothing on keto and CrossFit. So I was like, all right, well, <laughs> this, isn't, this hasn't been done yet. So let's see, let's see what happens. So that is why and how I got into that. And so the study was basically a six-week study and we had around 30 participants and we divided them randomly into two groups. And one of the groups followed the standard American diet, standard high carb diet. The other group followed a low carb ketogenic diet mm-hmm. for six weeks. And we took pre and post measurements. So we did pre-testing that included specific exercise testing. We did DEXA scans for everyone, hmm. other nutritional you know, testing. And then we did the same post-testing, so six weeks later. And then throughout the entire study, all of those who were following the ketogenic diet We tested ketones every single week to make sure that they actually were in a state of ketosis. And so the hypothesis was that the the ketogenic diet group would lose a significant amount of body fat over the six weeks while maintaining lean body mass. That's what we wanted to see or we hypothesized would happen. And that's actually what did happen. So after six weeks, the ketogenic diet group lost a significant, like on average, lost a significant amount of body fat while maintaining their their lean body mass and they also which we didn't expect they also improved their performance to the same degree that the standard american diet group did. And uh-huh. so this was was pretty r- really amazing results and actually like I my advisor he was again this is where I was for, very very new to keto and he had, obviously, he knew a lot more about this stuff, and we had to like check the results multiple times. We like, <laughs> wait, this isn't this is interesting. But it was it was you know issue, and and also not every single participant lost like a sick like most. It was statistically significant, but we also have to think about research and averages and things like that. Right. And then we also have to talk about too that. The fact that they're non-elite CrossFit athletes, I always like to mention that because if you think of CrossFit, most people who, if you've never been to a CrossFit gym, if you've heard of CrossFit, you think, you know, oh, those those people who go to the CrossFit games and are super, super intense and mm-hmm. have like eight packs and are just like crazy athletes. <laughs> yeah. But if you go to your average CrossFit gym around the world 90% usually, depending on the gym, but 90% of those people in that CrossFit gym are just your average Joe mm-hmm. looking to get a little sweat on, have a little competition, usually, you know, lose some body fat, get healthy. That's your average, average CrossFitter, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not the super elite athletes. And so that's what I always like to mention because people think about keto and CrossFit and they're like, oh, you can't do that because Cross is a very glycolytic sport, And we can dive into that too. That's kind of a whole other conversation, (laughs) in terms of you know keto and CrossFit and and that. But yeah, that's what kind of the study the results showed. And that's great. Yeah, I think that answered the question. Yeah, it's super interesting.
0: And you know, just to kind of follow up and and piggyback on that thought, you know that result that you mentioned is super interesting because I think one of the concerns oftentimes in performance athletes and whatnot with the ketogenic diet is whether that will impact overall performance. Right, and, maintaining and, it. Yeah. Yeah. And and can that mm-hmm. fill glycogenic stores the same right. way that a, a high carbohydrate intake could do.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's also something to think about too with CrossFit. I mean, and with any any sport when you do embark on a ketogenic diet like I did, you know, I did my research and I, and before the study, before we went through the study, I experimented with myself and, and I explained to these, these participants who are in the keto group that they. They probably were going to notice some diminished performance, especially in the first, you know, week or two. And I told them that they needed to be on top of their electrolytes, right? That's a Mm -hmm. big piece of the puzzle that a lot of people don't, when they first embark on following a ketogenic diet, if you're not on top of your electrolytes, then you're not, you're going to have a really hard time. And then also realizing too, that with my study, protein was not reduced. So the only factor that I told these people in the ketogenic diet group to follow was, keep your carbs under 50 grams of total carbs and let the rest fall where it may. There was Mm -hmm. no caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, none of that. It was just keep your carbs under 50 and let's see what happens. And so at the end of the study, actually protein was equal between groups. It was just the carbs and the fats that, you know, kind of swapped. Mm -hmm. And so that's something we have to realize too. And then also with CrossFit as a sport, yes, it's a very, very glycolytic sport, but Workouts can go from five minutes to 30 minutes or more. Mm-hmm. And so you have to realize like those 30 minutes, those 20, 30 minute workouts, you're not just in that glycolytic state or that anaerobic state. Your body is going back and forth between anaerobic and aerobic metabolism and energy systems. And you're using those just different energy systems. And with aerobic energy, like you, if you can tap into your fat stores more readily and easily, and this would be, you know, if you are, adapted to that, right. you will have a bigger advantage over someone who is just a sugar burner and they are super, super carb dependent. And so we have to think about that too, right? And so mm-hmm. that's where that that gray area comes in. People think, you know, if you're following, if you're in a sport like CrossFit, it's all glycolytic, but it really isn't. Like there are periods of time where you are tapping into that aerobic metabolism. And if you can tap into that fat to use a little bit more and save those carbs for those anaerobic times, right? that is, or those glycolytic times, that's can be super beneficial. So I think that's also something people don't think about. There is a gray area there and you're not, you're constantly going back and forth between these fuel systems and these energy systems. It's not like you're right when you start a CrossFit workout, you're immediately anaerobic. It doesn't work like that. Your body goes back and forth, you know, as you're going through the workout. So that's another thing that comes back to the education right, side yeah. of things as well. Right,
0: yeah. You know, you mentioned it a couple times, shifting gears just a little bit about managing kind of this, this burden, this, the stress burden, the kind of the overall stress load. And we often talk about parasympathetic, sympathetic balance on this podcast that relates to HPA access function. But when it comes to mm-hmm. athletes and the challenges that they encounter, you know, how do you address sympathetic, parasympathetic balance? Are there any techniques, tools that you incorporate in, in some of the athletes that you're working with?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think this is a big piece of the puzzle that a lot of people are missing too. And and not especially with athletes, but even just, you know, your average person who is going, you know, on a diet or looking to lose body fat. It's like, yes, nutrition is very, very important. It's probably one of the most important pieces, but, you know, overall stress and how you're sleeping and managing that allostatic load and man- managing that those, you know, parasympathetic sympathetic systems and, and all of that that is another piece that's it's missing. And that's where, like with my clients, we track biofeedback m- metrics, not just, we don't just track your macros, we don't just track your exercise, but we track, you know, how you're sleeping, how is your stress every single day? What's your quality of sleep like? What's your quantity of sleep like? How are you recovering from your exercise and things like that? and so. I think that's a huge piece that if you're not tracking that, you're not going to know how to make adjustments from there. Mm-hmm. So just tracking that in itself, right, tracking those biofeedback metrics in itself is going to give you so much data to be able to to become more aware of, you know, if you are super stressed out or if you are in that more sympathetic nervous system state versus that parasympathetic rest and digest kind of mode. So that in itself is important. And we're talking about athletes in particular, especially those who are maybe following a lower carb keto diet, there can come to a point where you you do need to get into that parasympathetic state. And I think, and this is how I kind of incorporate carbs, carbohydrates carb ups, carb cycling as a tool, not only to become more metabolically flexible, but to help with some of these to help get you into that recovery mode, right? Because recovery is so important. And you really have to be especially with, you know, when we're talking about athletes, like being in that parasympathetic rest and digest mode is where that recovery happens. And so if you are having if you're struggling to get into that, I think, one of the first things that I would incorporate probably for you know an athlete or someone I'm working with, again, it comes back to individual and what you're doing, but incorporating like post-workout carbs, right? Whole food sources of carbohydrates in your post-workout meal can help to bring that cortisol level down because we know insulin and cortisol kind of have this inverse relationship. And so if you spike insulin, that can help to blunt that cortisol response. So that's one thing that I've found to help with different clients that I work with, especially those who are athletes. So incorporating carbs post-workout in your post-workout meal can do that. Then also incorporating, you know, carbs pre-workout can help as well with that. And so that's one of the the biggest strategies I've seen. And then also when we're talking about You know, sleep and stress management, sometimes incorporating carbs in that sense can help with that, especially again, bringing that, blunting that cortisol response, especially at night. Sometimes if you're super wound up and you're in this kind of, if you're someone who thinks that, you know, if you're someone who experiences racing thoughts at night and you're kind of in this, like you're super tired, but you just can't fall asleep. That's probably you're, you're just in that sympathetic state. And so bringing you into that parasympathetic state, there's different things that you can of course. And it doesn't come down just to just to the nutrition side of things, but also like the mindset practices and, and all of that. Yeah. So that's something that's super important. But it all goes back to being aware, right? And, mm. and tracking these things. Because if you don't know, like, for example, I don't know how many hours of sleep or quality of my sleep from two nights ago, like I don't even remember. <laughs> but I do know because I track that every single day you know, with my Uh, coach, and he keeps me accountable to do that. So those are some things that a lot of people don't, don't think about, right?
1: Yeah. for sure. And I mean, even, you know, all of these, this is amazing information you've given today, Rachel, I mean, around all of these amazing, really clinical and practical tips for people, but you additionally have this awesome website called killingitketo.com. And there, all of the people listening to this podcast can go check this out. There's a lot of online exercise and nutrition courses. And can you talk about some of the resources you have available for people to check out free?
2: Yeah, sure. So I, so my website is killingitketo.com. It is actually going to be transitioned. I'm in the process of re- rebranding. So it will soon be called metflexlife.com. Mm. That's not depending on when this podcast comes out, I don't know if it'll be out yet, but (laughs) either way, going to one of those it will reroute you to killingakito.com or sorry, going to killingakito.com will reroute you to metflexlife.com eventually. Um, But yeah, so I have tons of blog posts up there that are just over the, the years of, you know, being in this space, things that I teach my clients, education about that, that's all, you know, free posts and recipes. And then I do have programs that are specific to, you know, if you're someone who, if you've gotten my book and you've gone through 20 day 21 days of keto, and you kind of want the next steps, I do have kind of a progression with that. So I have programs that are related to just it's one of them is called keto kickstart, which is beyond the book. And then the other one is keto for women, which is really a very in-depth three month program, which takes women who have maybe gone through keto, right. And they know what it is and they've had initial results, but now they're kind of add that plateau we talked about. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with the Keto for Women program, it's really bringing you through three months of teaching you how to become more metabolically flexible with that being the end goal. And then I also have a bunch of exercise programs that are based off kind of structured around that whole concept of progressive overload and building muscle and how important that is, especially for women. And then I do one-on-one consulting. I have my own one-on-one clients and I have applications for that. And yeah, so- that's awesome. everything that's everything you can find, and then
0: great. yeah, awesome. And you also got the podcast too, the MetFlex and Chill, which is obviously really great play on Netflix and <laughs> Chill. So, can you talk a little bit? I mean, you've talked about metabolic flexibility. What can people expect when they subscribe and listen to your podcast?
2: Yeah, sure. So, MetFlex and Chill. The yeah, the name just came. Obviously, MetFlex <laughs> is uh, right. short for metabolic flexibility, yeah. right. and that name just came to me. I don't know. It was just a fun. It's a great. fun name and I yeah. and I wanted to just go with it, you know. Yeah. So yeah, with the podcast, it's been it's been amazing so far. I've had lots and lots of guests on and really the goal of the podcast is to just, you know, educate people on this, you know, this concept of metabolic flexibility and what it means and how to, you know, work towards that, not just in, you know, nutrition and exercise, but also building that flexibility within your life and you're building that resiliency and being able to be flexible, especially in our modern society, we have carbs and processed food and we go to weddings that have cake and cupcakes and you shouldn't feel like you can't ever have a cupcake or cookie again, right? Like that's not, that's just hard to do right in this society. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that a lot of people kind of fall off the wagon, right? right? right. And so it's teaching your body to become more metabolically flexible to flexible to be able to deal with those maybe you know having a cookie on the weekend and not feeling like you com- completely derailed yourself and just being educated on how how to do that and how to i, I call it building an anti-fragile metabolism hmm. so building up this resiliency and understanding how to be flexible in this world we live in and to bounce back when something might happen and things like that. So that's really the goal
1: of the podcast. Great, great. Well, this episode is just jam-packed full of great information, and we're going to encourage everyone to go to iTunes and Spotify and check out Rachel's podcast, Metflex and Chill. She'll pick up her book, 21 Day Ketogenic Diet Weight Loss Challenge. And check out her website, which was com, which is now going to be directed to Metflex for Life.
0: Metflex Life.
1: Metflexlife.com. Yeah. yeah. But we're just so thankful <laughs> that you came to join us, Rachel, and we appreciate you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank
1: you so much. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, yeah, I was just gonna
0: say thank you so much for. I feel like we, the functional medicine community, there's so much interest in this, yeah. This will be a really great start, and we there are still so many areas that we haven't even scratched the surface of. So, like, yeah, just thank you so much, and maybe maybe down the road we can have you on for a part two or something.
2: Yeah, of course, of course. And if anybody's on social media, I, I think Instagram is probably the biggest platform that I, I know I'm on there every day. And I'm always posting a bunch of th- a bunch of different things. So awesome. my Instagram's rachelgregory.cns. So if anybody's on that, feel free to, you know, reach out with any questions. I answer questions on my podcast every single week and gladly we'll dive into any other any other questions.
1: Awesome.
0: Awesome. Thank you so Thanks, much, Rachel. Rachel. It's been really, really fun.
1: Thanks for having me. I had fun too. <laughs> oh no, Michael, guess what? What? We forgot to ask her if she likes sandwiches or what her favorite vegetable is.
0: No, I didn't forget that. What do you mean? No, that was all part of the plan. W- what plan? Well, I just, I knew at some point in there, we're going to, we had so many questions. We're going to have to have her on for like a part two, <laughs> maybe even a part three. And that's just like, it's the carrot at the end of the stick, right? That's the question that well, needs to be asked.
1: Did she agree to be on for two and three?
0: I don't know. I forgot to ask that.
1: See, Michael, we do need to put in a disclaimer, though.
0: Yeah. The content of this podcast is meant for educational purposes only. It is not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis and or treatment advice. Please be advised as such.
1: You're the best. What?
0: Next time on The Lab Report, we've got somebody special.
1: Aw, who?
0: Dr. Terry Walls.
1: (gasps) Yay, you're right. She is special.
0: And her story... Totally amazing.
1: Totally. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.
0: What if we got like a quantum physicist just for an episode for
1: just fun? That would be fascinating, actually. Just
0: about like like random topics, I'm Quarks gonna... and stuff.
1: Yeah, just like random things like that, like things. Quasars, black holes. Wow.
0: Just a random. Patty and Michael talk about black holes. <laughs>